Listen to world-famous Canadian author Margaret Atwood in a conversation with journalist and editor at Politiken, Lotte Fulke. The two discuss the condition of our world and the nature of science fiction novels. Praised for predicting dystopian futures in her novels, Atwood discusses feminism, writing, the pandemic and the banning of her books. The talk is presented in collaboration with Estee Lauder. You're listening to a Heartland podcast. I remember very clearly the day I pulled out a specific book from the shelf at our local small library. The cover had um, this tiny woman in a red coat, cloak, and a white bonnet. And as, as I remember it, against this huge gray wall. And the book was mesmerizing, and it was shocking, and um, my teenage self was never really the same. <laughs> But my taste for science fiction and for Margaret Atwood's books were awo awoken. Science fiction used to be a genre that was frowned upon as inferior. But really, it is an exploration of what it means to be human and what is important to us in the ways we build our societies. Margaret Atwood is one of Canada's most famous authors. She has written more than 50 books, and she is known for her feminist perspective and for her focus on environmentalism. She has been described as a prophet because of her uncanny ability to foresee the future in her novels. I was just asking her about the future, hoping to hear a little bit about what. Let's see if we, if we get some insights here today. Of course, many of you know the book I mentioned, The Handmaid's Tale, from 1986, that became a massive success as a series starting in 2017. The long-awaited sequel, The Testament, from 2019, received the Booker Prize. And in 2020, Atwood released Dearly, her first collection of poetry in over a decade. Today, Margaret Atwood will be in conversation with moderator Lotte Folke, Danish journalist and presenter at the TV news show Deadline. Please welcome Margaret Atwood and Lotte Folke. Thank you. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you, Margaret, for making it all the way here. We are so many people here who've looked so much forward to seeing you and seeing you in real life. Such a wonderful thing, real life. It's so wonderful <laughs> to be with all of you for this moment in time. Um, when Harden Festival finally gave in to my pestering and accepted that I talked to you here, I wrote on Twitter that there's no joyful storyteller whose hand I'd rather hold on my way through Hades and the apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what we're going to do. Nothing less in the next short hour. And we'll uh, have your new essay collection, Burning Questions, as our guide. And we're, uh, of course, a thousand or two kilometers from the front in Ukraine. We're about 4,000 kilometers from the melting Greenlandic ice plate. I think we're six or 7,000 kilometers from where you live. What do you think of this place? Well, not my first time in Denmark. In fact, we were just thinking about when I was last here several years ago, but also we were remembering the premiere of the opera of The Handmaid's Tale, which happened here in the year 2000. So I was here for that, and uh, I didn't know that people stomping on the floor was a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, is this good or is it bad? <laughs> It's good. <laughs> so the Danish people are very shy, yes. so they don't want you to see them actually clapping. <laughs> so. <laughs> 
So they do this. Instead, you can't see it. <laughs> With straight faces. <laughs> That's right. Anyway, it was a big success. And uh, it is now being uh, put on again. I think they're doing, they just did it in London. And uh, we have the ongoing um, television series. They are filming season five right now. Mm -hmm. Woo! What will, <laughs> what will happen? Surge me? <laughs> I don't know. I'll keep asking you until yeah. you tell us. <laughs> And this place uh, where we are right now is called Esco Castle, Oak mm. Forest Castle. It's supposedly because they filled an entire oak forest back in the 15th century uh, in order for it to be built. Along with those oaks disappeared, I think, was it 800 insect species that belong with the oak tree? You're the daughter of the forests and of an entomologist. And I wanted to ask you, when you visit a new place, do you sort of see or look for the natural histories in places you visit? Do you go look for the insects? Well, insects among other things. Mm -hmm. um, but first of all, I'm looking at the geology. And um, I'm looking at what grows on it because the geology determines a lot what can grow there. Okay. And... Um, I'm wondering about how Denmark was formed in the first place, like what's underneath. Mm -hmm. So I'll look that up once I um, mm -hmm. can spend some time with the internet. <laughs> will tell, tell me everything. Mm -hmm. um, but it's quite flat. You don't have a lot of mountains here. No. In fact, you have no mountains. <laughs> so, no. so I'm wondering about rising sea levels. Mm -hmm. Is that going to impact you at all? It is you indeed think so? going yeah, to uh -oh. impact us very much, yes. Well, you'll have to consult with your relatives, the Dutch. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm of course asking you this because uh, in general you're often preoccupied uh, with our relations with the natural world. Uh, across your work, but also very much in, across uh, burning questions. And uh, that relationship between us and the natural world kind of took a dark turn with Corona. Um, did your view on that relationship change uh, with Corona? Well, Corona is part of the natural world. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a secret. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's a bioorganism. And uh, the natural world is always producing new ones because viruses and microbes reproduce a lot faster than we do. And it can, they can make new mutations very quickly, as, as we have just seen. Uh, so you are seeing evolution in action uh, with the new... Oh, and I'm not even going to say monkeypox because I don't want to frighten you. Uh, I don't want to frighten you too much. Just a bit. <laughs> Just a bit. Yeah, so we, we are the natural world, and every time you breathe in, you are breathing in the natural world because you are breathing in oxygen that is produced by um, organic entities. So um, before this was an oxygen atmosphere, it was a methane atmosphere on this planet, the oxygen was produced by marine algae, and it continues to be so. So if we kill the oceans, we will find ourselves first stupider because we will have 60% less oxygen. Then we will have a lot of traffic accidents. Then we will be unable to work our cell phones. That's the really scary thing. And I'm saying this so that you will take action on <laughs> climate change, because if you don't, you won't be able to work your cell phone. Um, and, and then we will probably devolve into chaos and we'll be too stupid to be able to, to figure deal. out how to deal with it. <laughs> so that's how close we are to the natural world. Mm -hmm. And um, 
if I were you, because I'm not going to be around for it, I'm just sharing that, I'm part of the natural world, uh, <laughs> to which I will shortly return. Um, you're going to have to deal with the oceans, primarily. So all of these other things that you're seeing, including uh, resource wars, uh, are connected with climate change. Resource wars, why? Because in certain parts of the world uh, you've got water shortages and crop failures directly linked to changing climate. And of course, if you have thought about that before, then something like corona may not shock you, the appearance of it. But for, but for a lot of us, it felt like a shock. And in a sense, not a disruption, but at least um, something that pointed something out, not to you. Yeah. Well, they, these, these pandemics always change history one way or, or another. So the last huge one was 1918, 19, and um, I'm old enough so that I'm generationally connected with it because my mother and my father both went through it. And uh, it changed uh, things then, and this one has changed things uh, now. And I just experienced that because people have forgotten how to travel. Um, including me, I've forgotten how to pack. <laughs> what was this packing we used to do? Um, but particularly airports. And uh, so I spent basically two days getting here uh, because airports are not up to speed anymore. They've kind of forgotten how to do this thing. And uh, we had big delays, and apparently this is across the board. We're just seeing a lot of delays in in airports. But we'll get over that, and if 1918-19 is any example, a couple of years from now, we'll, we'll kind of not want to think too much about this period that we just went through. It'll be like a dream. What did you do for the last two years? Can you even remember? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Not if I can help it. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. I'd like to show you a clip which is also about the relationship uh, between humans and the natural world. It's from Werner Herzog's uh, Grizzly Man. It's a film about the life and death of an ardent naturalist uh, and bear lover called Timothy Treadwell. And Timothy Treadwell has these very warm, romantic views on nature, and Werner Herzog doesn't share those. He's <laughs> the one doing the voiceover. Yeah. So let's just have a look at a clip. Yeah, the bears didn't share it either. No. <laughs> Perfection belonged to the bears, but once in a while Treadwell came face to face with the harsh reality of wild nature. This did not fit into his sentimentalized view that everything out there was good and the universe in balance and in harmony. Male bears sometimes kill cubs to stop the females from lactating and thus have them ready again for fornication. I love you, and I don't understand. It's a painful world. Here I differ with Treadwell. He seemed to ignore the fact that in nature there are predators. I believe the common denominator of the universe is not harmony, but chaos, hostility, and murder. Very late in the process of editing this film, we were given access to Treadwell's last videotape. Here he may have filmed his murderer. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I love this film and I want to hear what Margaret Edward thinks about it because indeed Treadwell does get killed and eaten 
perhaps by this bear, certainly an old bear. Uh, and Herzog, of course, sees evidence here for his belief, as we just heard, that the common denominator for the universe is not harmony, it's chaos and murder. Why can't it be both? <laughs> That's my question. <laughs> yeah. What do you think? Well, I think these two views are, are two aspects of being human. So we know that we are capable of, of uh, horrible things. In fact, you're seeing some of them in action right now in Ukraine. Uh, so we know that we're capable of bad things, but we're also capable of a lot of creativity, a lot of altruism, generosity, courage, uh, creativity. These are, uh, they're all part of us. And uh, we can go back into the evolutionary reasons for that, but that would take quite a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, so so we're, we're pretty interesting. And here you have two... Uh, two views which correspond to the two 19th century views of nature, the words worthy in one, nature never did betray the heart that loved her, wrong. Uh, <laughs> Wordsworth was not Canadian. <laughs> he would have known. Uh, yes, I mean, you don't want to get stuck in a blizzard uh, in January in the woods, just saying. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, there's, there's that view, and then along comes Darwin in the middle of the 19th century, and people were very upset by that, and wrote a lot about it, including Tennyson, who said, nature read in tooth and claw. Yes, nature does have tooth and claws, um, teeth and claws, but, but also a lot of uh, other aspects too. So why can't it be both? Because it is both. Corona was not nature getting back at us for, you know, Virus. taking up too much space. Viruses don't have brains, mm -hmm. just letting you know. <laughs> <laughs> so they don't have intent. Um, no, I, I don't think so. It's, it's not a, a question of getting back at us. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's just a question of how these things move and it is by no means the first pandemic that has hit humanity. Let us remind ourselves of the great mortality which rearranged Europe a lot, the, the Black Death. Um, so, always a silver lining. Uh, jobs became open to women that weren't open before. <laughs> yeah, for lack of live men. That's right. <laughs> You got it. It didn't last, but for yeah. a while. <laughs> <laughs> we had a good run back then. <laughs> well, you had a good run doing hard jobs that you hadn't been allowed to do before. Um, yes, mm -hmm. but own money. Mm -hmm. Got some money. And it rearranged the labor market. So end of feudalism, basically. Mm -hmm. Except in Russia. They're still doing it. Didn't say <laughs> Um, something that uh, Herzog is also on to here uh, was something I thought about during Corona where um, there was this period that we all experienced where it felt like the world had ground to a halt. Everyone seemed sort of at a loss and I remember going for a walk and the trees and flowers were blooming. The birds were chipping, it was the spring, and I realized that nature didn't care at all about this big crisis for humanity. And you know, you just said there's always a silver lining, but I felt a lot of relief in that. Do you feel relief uh, when you have that experience? You spend a lot of time in nature. Not my first pandemic. Uh, so, not my first quarantine. Once upon a time, there weren't all of these vaccines. So in the 40s and part of the 50s, quarantine signs were, were normal. And there were a lot of diseases that, that there were no vaccines for. So I had four cousins who died of diphtheria as children. And polio hadn't been cured yet. You, 
You were very scared of polio. You didn't go swimming in a swimming public swimming pool in the summer because you might get polio, and a lot of people did. Uh, so it didn't feel unusual to people of my age. It just felt like a reprise. Mm -hmm. And we, we did have the AIDS crisis, but it wasn't quite as scary because we knew how it was transmitted. It wasn't things floating through the air in the same way. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, we've, we've had these... If you go back to ancient history, you see these records of plagues. Nobody quite knew what they were. In fact, they didn't know at all what they were. Uh, but we know that they, they occurred. And there's the famous Byron poem that we had to learn in high school. The Assyrians came down like a wolf in the fold, and blah, 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 and then they all melted away. And um, in the poem it says, the angel of the Lord did this, but being me, I thought, what was the pandemic? <laughs> What was it? Must have been very rapid. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, I'm also um, asking you about this theme because I've been wondering why it is that when I read your work, I always feel happy and relieved, even though you deal in very dark topics. And I have a feeling it has to do with the way you. Um, in which you write uh, sort of the opposite of how you describe the realistic uh, novel in this wonderful essay on scientific romancing you have in the book, where you talk about the Middle-earth narratives of middle-class people with narrow norms and so on, and you write about the value of thinking in a world where things could be different. But why do you think you don't get more depressed, you don't seem like a depressed person, even though you're such a soothsayer. I have very low standards. <laughs> <laughs> so instead of thinking, why aren't things wonderful? I think it could be worse. <laughs> That's true. So if you have no expectations, <laughs> you're generally pretty happy because it could be a lot worse. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody's going, oh, you poor thing, you were stuck in an airport. I said, listen, that's the worst. I'm doing well. <laughs> <laughs> But can you explain a little bit about storytelling and thinking of stories that expand the scope yeah. of what stories it's even possible to tell? Okay, so... If you're doing the realistic novel um, of ordinary life uh, without a lot of um, external crises, okay, let's just think of the novel as a, as a form. Um, I will illustrate. Once upon a time, my daughter, who doesn't like me telling this story, um, was five, and she and her friend decided to put on a play. So we bought tickets to the play, and we took our seats, and the play was about breakfast. The only person who can pull this off is Samuel Beckett. Okay, <laughs> so the breakfast unfolded. Would you like some more orange juice? Yes, thank you. Uh, would you care for some toast? Would you like some more toast? How about some cereal? This went on for a while, and we said, is anything else going to happen? <laughs> and they said, no. <laughs> We said, then we'll come back <laughs> when you've thought about the plot a bit more. Uh, so, you know, you can't uh, have a novel. You can have real life without much happening, as we all know. Okay. Uh, but in a novel, something has to happen. So what I say to mystery writers, if I'm working with them, I say, move the corpse up closer to the front. <laughs> <laughs> so we know there's going to be one. Fifty mm -hmm. pages in is too late. <laughs> <laughs> so when I do the creative writing, which I do much less frequently, I only work with the first five pages. Why is that? Because it's realism. It's not a university course in which the job of the professor is to tell you that you're wonderful 
and creative. And your, your writing is terrific. That's not my job. It's not reality. Mm-hmm. Reality is you've written your novel. It's gotten published. There's this great cover. You've rejected several other covers that weren't so great. And you've said, do not use that horrible shade of brown. I've said that myself. Do not use that horrible shade of brown. You have a great title, uh, probably your tenth choice. And you have reviewed the inside jacket flap copy, usually given to an intern to write. One of the most important jobs in publishing, you have rewritten it to get the names of the characters right, (laughs) take out the part where the entire plot is revealed. And just made it into an attractive come on. You have rejected several um, ugly pictures of yourself and, and chosen <laughs> a more enticing one to put on the back. Because what is it that the reader does first? The reader walks into the bookstore. There's your book. Visualize this. The reader picks up the book. The reader is anything like me. The first thing they look at is the jacket photo. Mm-hmm because we're all very nosy. And um, the next thing is the inside jacket flap. So supposing you've passed those hurdles, Mm -hmm. the book is in the hands of the reader. There's the first page. If you cannot get the reader past the first page, Mm -hmm. they will not continue. Your wonderful message on page 82, will never be read by them. (laughs) They won't even get to the corpse. So so your first job is to get them through five pages. And quite frequently with new writers, it's the wrong five pages. The real five pages are maybe on page 20. So you say, take this part, put it at the beginning like that. Mm-hmm. So something has to happen. The reader has to be given um, a mystery, something they want to know more about. So if you tell them everything in the first five pages, that's it, you've blown the book. Mm-hmm. So that's how stories are. Once upon a time. There was an anxious interviewer thinking, what does she want me to say? (laughs) (laughs) And the answer is, (laughs) yes. Uh, So so you you start out with the reader, and you are to the reader as Virgil is to Dante Mm -hmm. entering the inferno. So Virgil's been there before. We know that because we've read the Aeneid. <laughs> uh, so you want, a, you want a guide. You want a guide to hell. And your job as the writer is to take the reader in, show them stuff, and get them out again. That's your job. Mm-hmm. Out one way or another. So it's a pact. You've made a deal with the reader um, and you have to honor your pact. Mm -hmm. And with a science fiction writer, although you're setting up the terms of the story yourself, unlike a writer of, say, historical romances, you have a duty to, to history. You need to get the petticoats right or somebody's gonna call you out on them. Beginning, you idiot. Uh, (laughs) Wrong petticoat, you idiot. So you have to honor the terms that you yourself have set. You can't change in in mid-story and say, well, well, actually, this isn't a planet full of talking donkeys. I've changed my mind. (laughs) Instead, we're gonna have have, um, oracular trees. Mm -hmm. So like that. I want to um, talk about women, and there's a room up in the castle which made me think of your book, Alias Grace. Uh-huh. 
It's called Maid Ribor's Room, and that's because that's where the daughter of the castle's owner, Lauritz Brockenhus, was locked up. Oh, really? For life, for having gotten pregnant. Uh oh. While she was serving as lady in waiting at the court. That'll, that'll do it. <laughs> Christian the Fourth, who, by the way, was an enthusiastic burner of witches mm. and a famous builder of nice buildings. <laughs> do the two always go together? <laughs> I think they do go together somehow. Um, I don't think there are any fragments or traces of Ribo's voice uh, that have been preserved, but perhaps you can hear it whisper from the walls when you're up there. And I thought about this because I was so interested in this theme of channeling the silenced voices of women across the ages, the way it goes on in Alias Grace. Can you talk about your interest in that? Well, um, had we known whether Grace Marks actually was uh, a participant in a murder or not, it wouldn't have been interesting as a novel for me. So I'm, I'm interested in paradoxes and um, mysteries, hidden things, and, and how these stories are spun. So with um, male murderers, it's usually pretty straightforward. He done it. <laughs> Sometimes they're wrong. So Anthony Broadwater, for instance, didn't do it. Uh, but, but there isn't, um, there aren't two competing narratives usually. With um, male and female joint murderers, uh, there are usually two stories that get put out there. One, she was a terrorized victim, he made her do it. Mm -hmm. Two, she was a femme fatale who enticed him into doing it. And both of these stories got told about Grace Marks at the time, which was why it was so interesting to me. Uh, so you have a barely 16-year-old uh, servant, much debate as to whether she was literate or not. We now know that she was. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I and I chose that um, option. <laughs> uh, and and what was her story? So how did how did this all come to pass? You have four people in the house. Uh, two of them end up dead in the cellar. Two of them run away. They get caught. They're both put on trial. Uh, he for the murder of the owner of the house, Thomas Kinnear. Uh, and she is a, as an accomplice. There was a second body, that of the housekeeper. That murder was never tried. Only the first one, because there were two convictions. Uh, her conviction was then commuted to life imprisonment. On the scaffold, he said, Grace Marks helped me to mur murder Nancy Montgomery. And then he was dead. So of those four people, only one was left alive. And she never told. <laughs> she never told. Many conflicting stories told about her. But she herself um, did not uh, get a chance or possibly chose not to. Uh, she did have a fan club. You know, it's so much like today. There were people who were very much against her. Uh, they tended to be conservatives. Not done to murder your employer. Not Fair done. enough. Not done. Um, and on the other hand, we had reformers who took her part. They wrote letters to the government um, championing her innocence and release. Unfortunately, some idiot at the National Archives threw those letters out, but I, I knew they had existed. We, we did a lot of research on that. We, we tried to find out everything that we could. So we even found the judge's notes from the trial. Unfortunately, they were illegible. Mm -hmm. He had terrible handwriting. 
they were his notes to himself. And we found the records from what was pretty baldly called the lunatic asylum in those days. And um, they also were qu contradictory. Some people said she was a raving maniac, other people said she was not at all, and she was sane enough to be sent back to the penitentiary. So all of these stories were very interesting to me. How to make sense out of them. How to reconstruct what really happened. Uh, but what was clear in any case was that she was like uh, a blank screen onto which people projected a lot of their ideas about women, about Irish people who were very badly thought of at that time, about uh, servants, um, all of these ideas got projected onto Grace Marks. So that was the story that I was interested in, what it must have been like for her to be the object of all of those stories. So very young when she went in, quite a lot older when she came out, and a lot had happened in between. And then, of course, it's not a random thing that she's the one whose voice hasn't been preserved, right? As you say, there were doubts as to whether she was literate, which was commoner for women than for men. So was there also, I think, Grace thinks about that and hears voices from women whose stories can't be told because they're dead, right? Um, was there something about that particular trying to hear the voice of a voiceless woman that attracted you to her story as well? Not, a, not as an ideological uh, a priori. I, it was her story in particular that interested me, but um, she's not the only one. I also did a book in, in which Penelope talks. Mm -hmm. uh, but not only Penelope, but the 13 hanged... Um, Maids. Hand, had maids. Well, ba basically they were slaves, mm -hmm. uh, but they were called maids. Uh, yes, because that also, it was an honor killing, it's fairly clear from the Odyssey itself. Mm -hmm. And in the Odyssey, she does almost nothing but crying a lot. Yeah. Uh, but it, it must have been quite different because she was the only one running the show. You know, Odysseus was away, the father-in-law was over on the other side of the island doing pear tree cultivation, <laughs> and she must have been running the palace. So, so what was really going on there? Pretty interesting to me. There, there were three um, women of that period who were all related. They're, they're all cousins. Mm -hmm. So... Clytemnestra, the husband murderer, bad. Uh, <laughs> though, though, though she had her reasons. Um, Helen, the temptress, bad. And Penelope, the virtuous wife, mm -hmm. good. Mm -hmm. uh, that's how it's usually spun. Mm -hmm. I think it, when you when you delve into the the Odyssey, a book that mm, frightened me as a teenager. Uh, it's much more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. First of all, she was an accomplished liar. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so was Odysseus. So when they get together at the end and tell their stories... <laughs> complicated. <laughs> you would think so, who's telling the truth. And the, the Odyssey is not the only ancient story about her. There are quite a few others. Mm -hmm. But they don't get into the book. They don't get into the Homeric book. Mm -hmm. I want to have time to go to uh, contemporary times because, as you were saying to me before we came in here, so much is going on right now and it almost feels like we should talk about all of it. Um, one thing which is also about women's voices, uh, I'd like to show you a clip from, and this is clip three, uh, is from the day it came out that uh, the US Supreme Court was about to overturn Roe v. Wade. Uh, and this is a clip with the Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren, uh, who you usually see in a very cool, sharp uh, manner 
explaining economic insights and policies. But here she appears in a very different manner on that day. Let us just see the clip. I am angry. Angry and upset? Angry and upset in turn. The United States Congress can keep Roe versus Wade the law of the land. They just need to do it. I, I've never seen you so angry. You seem to be... This is what the Republicans have been working toward this day for decades. They have been out there plotting, carefully cultivating these Supreme Court justices so they could have a majority on the bench who would accomplish something that the majority of Americans do not want. 69% of people across this country, across this country, red states and blue states, old people and young people, want Roe versus Wade to maintain We don't want to dismember children land. in the womb, ma'am. We, no, we are not and going we to stand for dismembering 3,000 children in the womb every single day. And anybody, I don't care what type of leader you are, the fact that you as a leader... Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I wanted the headline here too, because this to me was almost the most frightening scene of all that day. Uh, there's so much chaos going on in that scene, and I wanted someone who can understand stories to tell me what this okay. is about. So, what you have to understand about the United States is that it was started as a Puritan utopia. Okay, in the 17th century. Uh, as Nathaniel Hawthorne wisely said, one of the first two things they built were a prison and a gallows. So you've got to have those in your utopia. Okay. Uh, get, get rid of people who don't agree with you. Um, so we are doing a project in the fall called Practical Utopias uh, on a platform called Disco. And that is going to give people the opportunity to see if they can do better. And you also have to understand that there's a war going on between originalists who believe that we should only do things that are in the original U.S. Constitution, which is an 18th century document, precedes even the French Revolution, but they are alike in denying political power to women. So if you're really going to be an originalist, women can't have the vote. Sorry. 1920, it's not original. Uh, so the, the part that really goes against the U.S. Constitution is this. Let me explain. Um, the belief, and it is a belief, not a fact, the belief that a fertilized egg is ensouled, that it gets a soul, at that moment is a religious belief. Because you cannot test it one way or the other, and that's what characterizes a belief as opposed to a fact. Facts you can, you can uh, test out to see if they're true or not. You can't test out anything having to do with souls because souls are a belief, okay? Ensoulment at the moment of conception is a religious belief. The original Constitution, Amendment 1, First Amendment says, number one, no state religion. Number two, freedom of worship. Okay, if it's freedom of worship, uh, you, you have to then admit that some people doing their freedom of worship do not believe in souls. So the b religious beliefs of those who do believe in souls are then going to be enforced upon those who don't believe in souls. That's against the First Amendment. I wrote a piece on this. Uh, I wrote a piece on this in the Atlantic. I preceded that piece by another piece that is in this book of essays, and I wrote that for an Argentinian book on an Argentinian case in which a young woman who didn't know she was pregnant had a miscarriage, didn't understand it, went to the hospital, 
was accused of having an abortion, which he didn't even know mm -hmm. anything about, and was jailed for three years. So they got her out, finally, it was very unjust, and as a result of that case, Argentina changed its laws uh, to allow abortion under some circumstances and to, you know, fix stuff like this, which the United States in certain states is busily uh, working against, mm -hmm. particularly in Texas. Uh, so here's my argument in that piece. There are some instances in which the state claims ownership of male bodies, and that would be conscription and the draft. But if you draft somebody into the army, you're responsible for their, uh, their food, their clothing, their lodging, uh, their instruction, and their medical care. So if you're gonna draft women in order to have babies, because you think your birth rate is too low, and they've said that, they want women to have babies for the state, just like Napoleon, then you should pay. You should pay for their food, their lodging, their medical uh, expenses, uh, their instruction, and you should continue paying. <laughs> and that would be easy to do. Uh, you have the person sign a form, are you having this baby of your own free will or is it being forced on you by the state? Checkbox two, you get all this money. <laughs> a lot of people will sign up for that. <laughs> because the truth is that a lot of women would like to have more children. They can't afford it. Okay, but as things stand, they're going to be forced to have more children and it's them who will pay. They're being, and, and that's slavery, mm -hmm. uh, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone who has a hand up? <laughs> so yes, you but just, that won't be yeah. popular. Mm -hmm. Yeah, male legislators are not going to sign on to that. <laughs> Probably not. Uh, without a doubt not. Yeah. And of course, this is an instance in which uh, your work uh, rightly is seen as almost the work of, of a prophet. You've heard a couple of your stories right now. You're a storyteller. Why, why would you need to make an unburnable book out of a story? Well, for the reason that it says that we are in a, a new age in the United States, particularly of book banning and book burning. Now this is not quite the same as uh, what was going on under uh, the Francoists in Spain and under Salazar in Portugal in which we couldn't publish The Handmaid's Tale in those countries at all. Mm -hmm. Not at all. So the first Spanish translation was in Argentina and the first Portuguese translation was in Brazil. Wow. So in the States it's mostly schools and, and libraries And uh, my advice to the publishers is, you know, make the propaganda, make the, make the publicity which says, too hot to read. <laughs> <laughs> Sales will go up. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we did this to raise money for Pan America, which has been exemplary in its advocacy for freedom of expression. It's a tightrope because, of course, Nobody is going to agree that absolutely everything should be taught in school and that, and that things are good just because they're a book. So Mein Kampf was a book. Uh, so there, there are lots of books that we, we might not burn them, but we wouldn't recommend them. So let's be clear. So what is this about in the United States? I think what it's really about is, is who gets to say Like, who's got the power to say who can read what? It's a power struggle going on between these people and those people. Uh, but in the uh, result, you get another violation of the original Constitution of the United States. So, so let's see what freedom of expression really means. Uh, let's see who's in control of it. And... Um, 
We auctioned the one copy of this book and uh, through Sotheby's and it will raise over $100,000 for Pan America. Well, in a time where people argue over who gets to say, I'm so thankful that you, Margaret Edward, gets to say still, uh, demands uh, that people listen and that people are still very eager to hear your words. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for all the stories you've given us. Thank My you. pleasure. Lovely to be here. You've been listening to a Heartland podcast. The talk was recorded live at Heartland Festival 2022 and is presented in collaboration with Estee Lauder. We hope that the talk has provided insights and perspective and that you're inspired to check out our other podcasts. They can be found on our website or where you usually listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.